Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we still believe that another world is possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility. And this week, we are running a bonus podcast with the amazing, well-known friend of the podcast, Dr. Simon Michaud. We had to cut off our third podcast together quite crisply, so we're running this one as a bonus immediately afterwards, although I sincerely hope and believe that we got the sound a bit better on podcast number four than we did on podcast number three. If you haven't listened to podcasts one, two and three, then please do so because a lot of what we talk about is predicated on those. That said, We've taken a different tack in podcast number four. Podcasts one to three, we were looking really at the extent to which the current system is breaking down and the various work-throughs that we are being given, particularly the work-through of replacing fossil fuel-based energy sources with the so-called renewable or rebuildable energy sources, is a logistical impossibility. It's just not going to work. And we go in detail into why that is with actual crunchable numbers in podcasts one to three. So what I wanted to do with podcast number four that you're about to hear is have a look at what could work. What can we do so that we can build that future that we'd be proud to leave behind? And Simon really came through on this one. He talked about some things that he hasn't spoken about elsewhere, at least not in public. And I came away from this conversation feeling genuinely hopeful, which was not really the case after podcasts one to three with Simon. So here we go. Be prepared to absorb some quite startling numbers. And then perhaps we all need to get together and work out how we can all make this happen. So people of the podcast, for the fourth time, please welcome Dr. Simon Michaud. Simon, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast for the fourth time. Actually, I keep forgetting, I have to call you Superbrain from here on in, because I got a a text from somebody saying, my God, that bloke, Superbrain, eh? So so dear Superbrain, (laughs) welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast. It's a pleasure to be talking to you as ever, one of the most Exciting. It's always adrenaline fills <laughs> talking to you. It's great fun. How are you in Finland? Hello, Amanda. Uh, life is good. Spring has come. Yay. For the audience, I should tell you that when I was in school, my marks were average <laughs> and I barely got into undergraduate university. And it wasn't until I finished and came out the other side and found myself in doing a PhD that suddenly my brain suddenly threw a switch and everything was easy. And it starts to work. And from that point, and everything from that point on was easy. It doesn't that say quite a lot about our education systems, that they were not able to throw the switch sooner because it's quite clearly a high-functioning switch. Yes. Anyway, let's kick into, because we finished uh, podcast number three quite quite suddenly because your machine decided to switch off. So what we were going to do now is you and I are going to map out a future that would work. What we've established so far really clearly in podcasts one to three is that most of the maps that we have to getting forward are not going to work because the material flows are just not there. In various ways, the energy isn't there and the actual stuff to make things 
are just not going to come out of the ground in the amounts that we need. So we're being gaslit by people who either know it and don't care or actually mostly are probably ignorant because there seems to be the mindset that fundamentally business as usual will jog on and we'll just swap out fossil fuels and swap in renewables, rebuildables, whatever we want to call them. And the world will carry on exactly as before, Mm. where you can go out to the shops and buy whatever you want to help yourself feel better about the fact that everything else is going to shit. So given that you and I want the human race to continue, neither of us believes that total extinction of all human life, in fact, all life on Earth is inevitable, although I think it's definitely on the cards. We need to understand what that future looks like. So we have... Misho's hierarchy of needs, which I think will still apply. We kind of got a bit stuck on power in podcast number two, but we still know what the hierarchy is. So let's have a run through a future. Let's give ourselves a timeline of, say, 2050. Okay. You and I might not still be around, but let's let's pretend that we are. Oh, we will. I am older than you think I am. Um, but anyway, whatever. 2050 feels like a, it's, you know, it's midpoint of the century. What does the world look like if we've actually followed a decent logistical track between now and then? Over to you. So there's going to be a radical reimagining of every sector at the same time. So we're not, we're not looking for a widget that suddenly changes everything, like um, a new thing that you buy at the supermarket. So everything's reimagined. And it, everything from where we get our energy from, what form it takes, where we get our food from, who grows it, that has to change. Uh, how we do our transport is probably the biggest change. Uh, and across the board, it will be less quantity and more quality. Uh, we socially will have to change our relationship with energy and with raw materials and with each other and the environment. And while it sounds complicated, that's actually one change, hmm. not lots of them. Can you and say a little bit more so, about so, that? Or do you want to carry so, on, yeah, carry on no, your flow and well, come back to it? So we'll come back to it. Okay. So um, if we remember. I've written it down. <laughs> I will remember. So, um, right. So, so, so we've got this thing where um, the way this will work, I think, is just certain things are just not going to be in the market anymore. Not going to be a voluntary change. Uh, we're already seeing it already. I think I saw um, an article where China is going to ban the export of rare earth elements. Wow. Right? So that means any technology that has rare earth elements in it cannot be sold outside China. And so, heck and flip. Um, so, As of when? When do we need to buy all the solar panels by? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question because when is the supply chain? Because there's a momentum to this. Mm. Uh, um, whether they actually followed through on that, was it, was it a threat or whether is it part of going through Chinese parliament or not? You never know with the Chinese, but th- there is a massive east-west divide coming. And there's, um, y- y- you could say everyone involved is done playing games now and the conflict is going to go to another level. Wouldn't it be nice if we were able to do this without a conflict somehow? Are we going to get to 2050 if we do it by conflict? No, um, it'll just be more disrupted. The people who run our society have decided that conflict is a good thing. Okay, we need to get rid of them before 2050. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a peace, there was a peace deal on the table in Ukraine. 
uh, and and good old Boris Johnson went in and yes, scotched it. I remember. So, so, yeah. so, but it's it's not just one person though. That is a big system, and 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 the war is a uh, a, a byproduct of a strategy, in in my opinion. So anyway, so we're going to see. That. We also saw over the weekend that I think it was Chile has nationalised all lithium deposits. Oh, well done, Chile. So. What that means is uh, the lithium will now be used according to the Chile government on their own terms. Wow! Right, and so it, they're going to do, they're going to do what Saudi Arabia uh, uh, has. And so all these international mining companies now who thought, you know, well, we've got the money. What's the problem? It's a different world right. now. And so once that starts, then all uh, elements of of lithium and cobalt and like, like half the cobalt happens to be in the Congo. That's always been a bit of a touchy zone. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I can see someone annexing that militarily. Do you think, because, you know, Chile has a history of trying to be socialist and the Americans crushing it very nastily, Allende, and thereafter. Do you think they'll let them now nationalise lithium or do you think they'll just send in the CIA? I think. The uh, there's a book called uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Yes, uh, it is a video. Also, I'll put it up. I'll put it in the show notes. It's very good. That is the sequence of events that they would like to try. Unfortunately for them, one of my favourite books was written by an author called Naomi Klein. Yes, called The Shock, Shock Doctrine. Doctrine. Yes, <laughs> I'd like to meet Naomi one day. Uh, her and Naomi Wolf—they're extraordinary. In the seventies, the Americans tried a whole lot of stuff, and it was very successful. But the people involved in America now remember this. They go, says, we're not putting up with that. <laughs> and so I think that the traditional methods of the um, of of economic coercion won't work in South America so well because it's now in their culture. They remember this stuff. Uh, I, but I, but there are no good guys, and I think everyone will try to do the same thing. Anyway, so so Chile, I think this is only the beginning. If you've got a very, very necessary set of resources for something like energy or food or water or, or, or something important and there's not enough to go around, then various groups will try and step in and take it. And if it wasn't governments, it'll be things like a large corporation. Yeah. And they'll step in and say, we, we're going to take that. Now, that, that's human nature. And so we're seeing the beginning of it. To me, it was apparent five years ago. It's only human nature if you think we're all Vikings. And you're, and you're, we, you better just give us a very brief of your four classes of people. Okay. Just so other people may not know this. The, there's the inherent nature of, of the human being where we do want to be nice to each other and nurture each other. But there's also a level in our biology where it tells us to consume all resources in competition with everyone else. So... A quick summary, this is just a very basic model I put together, where I believe we'll split into four paradigms. Uh, number one is the cornucopians, the people who believe there is no problem or someone will think of something or um, the business stop my whining. Crowd. Yeah, business as usual, leave us alone. Uh, um, I want to go back to my bank account, please. Yeah, somebody shouted at me the other day about the fact that the Chinese were weaponizing the weather and actually climate change wasn't really happening. And it was all, I thought, okay, yeah, business as usual. Yes. And so, so uh, all sorts of things are being weaponized at us. Like our own money is being weaponized at us. So there's, there's warfare on all levels. Uh, and so this is why you say, I'm, I'm, I'm now going to a cave in the wilderness. Goodbye. <laughs> That's where we're heading. But we want it for everyone. So not that many caves left. Uh, okay, okay, so, so now we're going back into the cave. I see. Um, 
<laughs> so, all right. The second, the second group is the um, group I call the Vikings, but we can now call you know the Raiders, Colonials, Colonialists. the Colonials, uh, uh, the, the, the Colonials. Um, except they're not going to hand it over to their masters; they're just going to keep it for themselves. Instead of actually making things to, to for the future about what we actually need going forward, they're going to try and take it from other people. And so, uh, I'm going to take stuff from you because I, I want it. And I couldn't be bothered doing it myself. Romans. We could just call them Romans, actually, because they... Oh, the they're... Romans. What did they ever do for us? Exactly. Uh, so, and so um, so the, the, they're the raiders. And they're the people who will just take stuff until something gets better, not realising that they're actually destroying any hope for the future if, they're, if, if someone else didn't come up with something else. The third group is the prepper community, the people who will attend to the immediate needs of, of society. They understand that the wheels have fallen off. And the conventional way, ways of getting things like food and water is uh, not going to work. It's community-based in various uh, actions. The healthiest example of that would be the Transition Town Network, but there are various group, groups of that. Uh, how do we take uh, like a village self-sufficient, that sort of thing, grow your own vegetables? The fourth group is the group I call the Arcadians, and they're the ones who are actually thinking long-term a century from now, what will human society look like? How do we get through this very sort of troublesome period where we maintain the more civilised aspects of our society? And how do we be genuinely wise on the other side? Right. And uh, yeah, and there are things like how do we maintain levels of education is a big one. Like like kids are now educated for 20 years before they move into the workforce. Hmm. Uh, so so we, <laughs> how do we do that uh, in, um, in a low-energy world? So... Um, so they're the four groups. And so what you've been discussing is business-as-usual cornucopian behaviour by the old guard of people for whom hierarchies, power hierarchies exist and they want to remain at the top. And if we look at the Arcadians, then what we're talking about then is horizontalism and horizontal organisation and mutual cooperation mm. and everything that goes with it. Do you think the business-as-usual people are just going to win out because they have more firepower? Uh, because their own thinking will get in the way. Uh, there'll come a point when the business-as-usual people will realise things are getting harder and harder and harder. The parts they will apply firepower to, uh, to defend business-as-usual, will become increasingly ineffective. And, in fact, they all face off against the raiders, and the raiders will see them as the most viable target to go and raid. Yeah, because those two seem quite interchangeable in the way that the kind of transition end of the preppers and the Arcadians seem to me to be blurring into each other, that, that there is a raiding mentality to Putin and Ukraine. Yeah. Or if, if the American government decided that it was going to take over Chile again because, hey, they want the lithium, that's a Viking action on behalf of business as usual. That is correct. Uh, so, um, but then, then you've got a sort of the different tribes will then come against each other and say, that's unacceptable. We're not going to put up with that. And if you're going to do that, then we're not going to interact with you in this form. Okay. So let's get ourselves back to 2050. Let's let the politics go for a little bit because that could get very knotty. Yep. Let's have a look at what we've got co different qualities. We've got more quality, less quantity. We've got different ways of producing power, presumably different ways of storing it and using it. We've got different ways of accessing water and sewerage because fundamentally big cities, if you don't clear 
clear the waste away very quickly. You've got typhoid within about three days. So mm. that's still going to be essential if we have big cities. And then we've got different ways of producing and transporting the things that we need, starting with food and then moving to the the things where we all die less fast. Because mm. it seems to me a lot of people, particularly the prepper community, are looking at how do we perpetuate something that feels like what we grew up with. Yeah. And what the Arcadians are getting to is systemic change isn't a replication of the past. It's systemic change. It's emergence into a new future. It looks completely different. It's an evolution. So, yeah. So what does our, let's, let's take as read that the evolution has happened. What does it look like? So the prepper community is a holding action. The Arcadian community is an evolution. Yep. The raiders are a degradation. Uh, like a, a coming apart of things, business as usual is heat death. Yeah, yeah, and it, I think business as usual is going to merge into. They're either going to become raiders or they're going to become preppers. They can't. You know, yeah. Business as usual is not gaslighting yourself. Yeah. only lasts so long. Denial yeah, exactly. is yeah. a river in Egypt and it runs out of water. So yeah, exactly. You know so it. then we've got raiders, preppers, and arcade. Let's assume we've got raiders and Arcadians, and let's assume further that by twenty fifty. Yeah, we may be something similar to uh, Cory Doctorow's walkaway, where there's the, the Zotter rich are kind of behind a big fence and they cannot be bothered to go into the wilderness, but the wilderness is full of the people who walked away who get yeah. the different future. So we're looking at a more decentralised future, I think, where things are going to happen on a smaller scale. Uh, political authority uh, could be um, moving away from nation states and more towards the Shire Council level uh because you know they're the people who own and run hospitals and you know you know waste transfer stations and sewage sanitation plants and and the schools right so so they're they're very um uh they're doing the useful work and also if um as a consequence of um energy a low energy future in network terms. We have to become less complex and smaller in size for the network. Do you know, have you an idea of what a viable size is? Because we've got the Dunbar number there as our concept of social limit. Mm. Um, Dunbar number, for people who don't know, is Ian Dunbar, who worked out, it wasn't Ian Dunbar, he's a dog trainer. Uh, A guy called Dunbar, whose first name I can't remember, but he was a social anthropologist and he worked out that the maximum number that with whom you could have reasonably effective social interactions was 150 and that that was generally village size. And once it gets bigger than that, you split off and start a new village. Yeah. So are we looking at units that size, do you think? I thought, like, I came up with the number of, say, uh, 30 or 40 families, which I suppose is 150 people. Yeah, give or take, isn't it? Yeah. And anything larger than that, then you start having replications. There seems to be a level of human consciousness when masses of people come together of 250,000 humans, when you put them together, then uh, you get a lot of synergy things at an industrial level. So how do we do that? But that could happen online. That doesn't have to happen with people living within walking distance of each other. But you know, cities of 12 million people, uh, they, they're going to, you know, you've got to get a lot of food, like into London, for example. Yeah. How do we do that? And the only way they're going to survive is if they go the Isaac Asimov route where they start you know, growing yeast factories uh, for food. 
Which never struck me as very energy. If we're moving to a low energy world, you do not want to be putting significant amounts of your energy into growing food when you could be growing it courtesy of sunlight, you know, six miles down the road. Exactly. So now we're talking about the natural thing will be to decentralize. How, how big those communities are, I'm not entirely sure. The, the answer to that could be what energy source do you have naturally? If you happen to be, for example, in areas of, say, Norway that have lots and lots of natural hydro power, then they can have a high density, a high energy density society. If you happen to be in Iceland where you've got enormous amounts of hydro and geothermal. Hydropower, can you conduct industrial activity with hydropower? Is it intense? Enough? Yes, you can. Okay, go on then. All right. Yes, you can. In fact, they do it now. Okay. But you wouldn't be able to mine with the hydropower because unless the mine happened to be under the waterfall. You've got to actually transfer the power to the mine somehow. Right. And I su- in theory, I suppose you could, but no one's done it yet. The amount of power that a, a mine needs you know, is, is generally around the, the it's like installed, like you know, 50, sometimes 100 megawatts. Per, per how, how long? I don't, you know, I, rolling. And so that's that's the installed, you know, the rolling uh, power. And so so you, you are actually looking at a, a considerable amount of concentrated power to do it. And it tends to be in the middle of nowhere, often in the desert. And it will require, one assumes, huge amounts of copper cabling that probably yep. won't exist. Okay, so let's drill down yeah. into this. Let's let's assume, let's take Norway. They've got some hydropower, they've got a lot of wood, they've got biomass if nobody's going to nick it all. They've got quite a stable culture and at the moment quite good governance that understands equity. Mm-hmm. Getting stuff, it seems to me by 2050, the global stocks of, let's say, copper, let's use copper as, as an index for everything else, mm-hmm must have stabilized because we will not be able to pour the energy into getting it out, the energy or the water, to getting it out and transporting it around. So we'll have to be reusing what we've already got in some kind of recycling. Yeah. But but you only recycle stuff when it's the, the thing that you're recycling is done with. So there's an amount that's in constant yeah. use and there's a smaller amount that's being recirculated. And that seems to me to be a rate-limiting step. That is correct. So I, I think we're going to see a reinstitution of the old boneyard. Everything is dismantled. And and for use, you know, you know, and the things that are not reusable. Like when you take a car to a wrecking yard, an auto wrecking yard. As a young man, I used to go out to the auto wreckers and crawl over these car hulks to get parts. And that was how I used to fix cars. So, um, but what they do is a car comes in and some mechanics will go over the whole car and strip it. Anything of value gets taken and put in a, into a shed, like taken out of the weather and put on a shelf in the shed. I think we're going to see that. But instead of actually putting it into new cars, we are going to repurpose all those things. Okay. The alternator and the starter motor from an internal combustion engine is useful. Your computer, uh, that it, you know, if you were to hand it in, there'll be electronics in it that still might be, be able to repurposed. But someone's got to pull them apart. Especially if it's been redesigned such that that is the case. But I'm vividly remembering in our first podcast together, you holding up your cup of coffee and going, once you poured the milk in, you know, it's no longer the case that you split it into coffee grounds, water and milk. It's become something new. That's correct. And so unless people start diverting a lot of intellectual creative energy towards separating the, the milk from the coffee as a metaphor, in everything that we've got, there's going to be a certain amount that isn't reusable, recyclable, or refurbishable, I guess. That's, that is correct. And so we will lose a lot of resources that way. 
Uh, and we, if we start making things that were designed to be recycled through necessity, we could check, we start to turn all that around. Okay. The amount of resources flowing into society is about to take a step change down. And we are just not prepared for that yet. So there'll be a lot of human innovation. Uh, there's a, there'll be a lot of sort of chaos and a lot of rules and regulations from business as usual will prevent this from happening to start with. Because they want to still have planned obsolescence and you still need to buy a new widget every three years because we make money out of widgets? They want their paradigm to continue. They want their authority to be recognised. We had these rules for a reason. You were destroying civilization by by taking away my rules. So we need, this is back to, I have a, a kind of triad of the legacy media, politics and economics, and they feed off each other in a continuous cycle. And we need to break that cycle somehow. Yeah. Such that we can have new governance systems creating a new economic system and then business and the media will have to change. But that requires everybody to get behind it. You know, this needs policy shift. So I remembered reading a uh, historical account of, of biblical Palestine you know, 2,000 years ago. And in that environment, the average person had completely lost faith in the ruling class. Hmm. And it was, it was like this amorphous soup of chaos and no one knew anything. No rules were recognized. It was all, it was very close to anarchy, right? And, and I, I, th I think uh, and then, then we saw something very similar happen in the 16th century, yeah, with the uh, the witch burning uh, uh, era, with neighbours, you know, reporting on mm. each other. That was anarchy as well, but that was directed. Yeah, that was maliciously directed by to, to to shape political power. That's not what I'm talking about here. I think we're going to be heading into another era like that, where trust in institutions at all level has been eroded, and you know, you know things like. Uh, there's there's four pillars in a relationship. There's love, there's trust, there's respect, and there's honour. Hmm. And all four pillars are being eroded in our society in all things to the point where the social contract, even between us all, has been eroded to the point where those things are now discouraged. But if we're going to get to 2050, we have to reverse that process. Oh, we will. We we will. We will. That, we have no choice. So these 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 things have a genuine... Uh, a half-life of effectiveness. You cannot have a strategy like that for very long because people start to wake up. Hang on, I've heard this story before. And there's this, right, now it's a knife between the ribs. Is it a sharp knife or a blunt knife? Uh, you know, and, and so we're not, we're not going to, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And so, and so there's a, a window of opportunity, uh, uh, window of opportunity between when something is possible and something is irrelevant, right? We are approaching such a window. And in, in that window, uh, do we turn on each other or do we realize the person next to you is actually your solution? And what, what's happening at the moment is the efforts to get everyone to turn on each other are becoming stale. You know, especially when the same methods keep coming out. Hang on, I, I've heard that one before. Um, I, I've been programmed to hate you, but hang on. That didn't work last time. Yeah, I hope. I really hope. So let's let's make the assumption that that 2050, we've got over this somehow. I'm still really keen to know the logistics, the kind of size and what it looks like and how it's being powered and how the water flows out of the tap, if there is a tap, and how we're growing our food and how much minerals and manufacture, mining and manufacture, is actually still happening by 2050? Or are we in a steady state? 
where we're able to roll with what we've got and we can begin to do the whole regenerative, are we going to be doing the reparation of regeneration of the damage that we've done? Uh, we probably have no choice in that. Uh, what I'm now looking at is if you've got like a village of, say, 150 people, but you're going to have a cluster of villages, that village won't be industrial. Yep. That Those villages will cluster around a small industrial cluster, a small city. And I, I don't know how big we're talking about. It It might be something like you know, a thousand people. Okay. Well, that would now be a very big village, in, certainly in this country. So, but, but the outer, the satellite villages, they're role is to grow food. The city in the centre, its role is to do industrial things with the products that are made out in the villages. Okay. Right. We can't go anywhere anymore. So we cannot, for example, def- if we get things wrong, we can't just palm it off. If we get things wrong, we're in our own nest. Fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the only path forward through that is regenerative farming. When Also, when we lose industrial agriculture. Yes. Which we have to do if we're not going to kill the seas very soon. We have to do, and so it, yeah, so and I think the rail network will be very important because we can move heavy, large volumes of goods around. Uh, sail will become important again, but in, instead of uh, uh, ships that are powered with, say, fossil fuels, we'll go. You know, if we go back to sail-assisted ships, yeah. that's the win. Yeah, it, it'll be slower. It'll be harder to do and all that, but we can do it. Yeah, and presumably sail-assisted ships with modern technology of of radar and GPS positioning and things, it it's harder. And to get you in and out of to get you in and out of port, you might have a like say a hydrogen or ammonia system uh, to get you in and out of port. But once you're out of port, you put up the sails and away you go. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Because I listened to the hydrogen podcast with Nate Higgins, and I know all hydrogen is an extremely inefficient way of moving energy by now. But yes, it's still what you've got. And uh, but also, I have to say, he, he was quite clear that burning. I thought you burn hydrogen and you get water. Yay! And he went, no, no, you burn hydrogen and you get nitrous and nitric acid and or nitrous and nitric oxides, and they are massively more greenhouse gas potential than CO2. So burning hydrogen, probably not a brilliant idea. So it's not a, it's not a brilliant idea on a number of fronts. Um, I, for example, instead of making hydrogen, you make ammonia mm. and use geothermal to do it and you're transporting ammonia. Right. Ammonia is a liquid and the ammonia can be used as a fuel directly. Okay, so it doesn't need pressure and temperature that liquid hydrogen does. No, it doesn't, and it doesn't won't corrode any containers it ends in the same way and, and brittle it, so you can transport it. Okay, it's not a massive reduction agent. Okay. You can't have a hydrogen pipe, for example. We just don't have the materials to do it. Right. So, But if, if, if you had uh, an ammonia system and then you had a high-tech system to collect any uh, flare-off, any the exhaust plume, and that exhaust plume is then um, collected and their chemicals are in their own right, which can be repurposed to other things. Right. So this is an equivalent of carbon capture and storage, but for nitrates and nitric. Yeah. And but if you if if you do it in a way that doesn't depend on a lot of exotic technology or energy. Okay. Right. Um, and and so so what I'm saying is that transport network is completely reimagined. Okay. Right. And so what I believe will happen in all sectors at the same time, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yep. It's a movie, right? Yeah, is it? Right, yes, I haven't <laughs> seen it. Um, is it good? <laughs> it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I enjoyed it. Okay. It, it's very strange. 
it's 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 like the scriptwriter was on acid when they wrote the script. That's entirely plausible. And so, <laughs> I'm I'm a fan of Michelle Yeoh. Uh, she she's a, an amazing actor, actress, and she's not been given the credit I believe for her abilities until now. Right. And she, I think she won an Oscar for that film. Anyway, I, it's it, some people looked at it and said, "No, nah, no, nah, not my cup of tea." But I, I liked it. I thought it was all great. Right. Anyway, so so um, all sectors all at once will um, be reimagined in ways that we can't imagine now. The growing of food, the manufacturing stuff, even even as sewerage. Like, how do we do sewerage sanitation? Composting toilets, but yeah, that's limited in a in a village or small town of a hundred of a thousand people. That's harder than it is for one hundred and fifty. For sure. Yeah. So, so if you were to reinvent a sewerage sanitation system in the new, uh, with the new restraints, you know, so you could do it, but it would look different to how it is now. Especially if you have the idea that you've got to somehow process that sewerage without dumping it onto your neighbour. Or in the rivers, like we're doing in the UK at the moment. Yes. Or in the rivers, which, which if if we are now dependent on those rivers for other things. We shouldn't do that anymore. Also, yeah, there's a lot of movement towards this is quite a useful resource that, that if we can process it correctly and we're not just spreading it, you know, any typhoid, we might want to be putting this on our fields. So if we were to actually phase out industrial agriculture uh, and, and go like uh, full, full spectrum, orga- uh, small scale organic in a regenerative sense, we need to actually be generating uh, a balanced fertiliser uh, nutrient fertilizer and sewerage and grey water systems, for that matter, are all useful. Right. Uh, and the, the merging of in a grey water system, if you were to merge an aquaponics system with a grey water system with a sewerage treatment plant that was actually a compost factory, and that compost would then go out to farms, and by the time it gets to the farm, it, it, it is not as it's not dangerous to handle anymore. Yeah, and presumably it's also not dangerous. It's not only not full of bacteria that we don't want, but we've also got out all of the chemicals because I, I read an article the other day, I had no idea previously, but human breast milk now has something like 84 different toxic chemicals in it uh, because it, it's in the water uh, and we're not clearing them out. And then we wonder why people are getting sick. So... So the so the water runoff from our systems has got to go into something like a grey water system that has lots of plants in it. The plants uptake all the harmful elements and they go into the plants. We then harvest those plants and we burn them in a combined heat and power plant. And in the end, all the heavy metals that were in the plants collect in the ash at the bottom of that furnace. Okay. And and then we actually get the the, the metal. And that's how we extract heavy metals from the environment. We work with Mother Nature, but then we go industrial, hand in hand. So it's not one or the other, it's both together. That's how the Vikings used to make swords. Yeah. They, used to, they used to gather a moss that, that, that abstracted iron from the environment, and they would gather tons of it and burn it down and get enough iron to make a sword. It's amazing. So we're basically, okay, so this is one of the ways we're going to get some of the stuff that we need. Yeah. It's problem solving. Problem solving, yeah. And so, so um, if we realise that the environment is full of toxins now, and we have to do something about it, and if we don't do something about it, it doesn't get done. Yeah, no, true. Okay. And so we have to use industrial or technology somehow within the restraints that we are now working with, and it has to be part of our everyday life. So, 
We talked a lot in podcast two, you and I, about power, but I'm still really curious at this level of, let's say, a, th- a thousand people in a central industrial area surrounded by smaller villages, but within transport reach, and the smaller villages are producing food, fibre, fuel, and the central unit is then processing them as they need with, I'm thinking, quite a lot of electric bikes to and forward and maybe maybe some trains for the big stuff. What is our power generation looking like and how are we sharing that power? So at the moment, all conventional power systems have problems with scale up, right? And the smart money at the moment, if we insist on doing things this way and only this way, uh, we are we are going to go into a situation where fo- fossil fuels are gone, oil, gas and coal, uh, no more, no more use. Um, but also, wind power and solar panels are not going to be able to be implemented in large numbers because they're not available on the market. Because China decided no more stuff. Because we no longer make stuff anymore, and we are now at war with the people who do. Yeah, but even if we weren't, from what I've heard from you, that just isn't the the material flows are not there. So even though the Chinese go, it's all ours, they're still not going to have enough. No, they're not. And so they're going to be in a society where the rich get the rich stuff and the poor get the poor stuff. And that's a fast way to revolution. And the, well, the Chinese are very happy with that sequence. Right. Yeah, they, they, they don't care if they do that to their own people. They care even less if they do it to us. Right. And so I'm trying to create a world where we don't have to interact with that cycle at all. Yep. So what does it look like? How are we generating? Let's assume we're not getting a lot more solar panels, we're not getting a lot more wind. Something has to be completely reinvented. Right. Like like, like one, one part of the energy sector has to be reinvented or we go into a society that's very low energy. Like we just use what non, non-fossil fuel systems we have at the moment, which frankly, like in Germany, what do they do? They shut down the nuclear power plants. They're not allowed to use coal power plants. Their renewable sector is not working either. What do they do? They said, we're now going to cut down the Black Forest. Oh, goodness. No. And, and so combine it you know, for heat. Well, they have to do something right. to, to get through winter. That's finite. It, it, you know, This is not a replicable, scalable answer. Yes, I know. So, so this this is the nature of the problem. And so, but but then you have to sort of say, is this really the only way out? Well, it can't be. It's not. It's not a long-term solution, is it? Yeah, the the black forest's gone, and then what do you do? Then what to do? Yes, like now what? <laughs> so, meanwhile, they're claiming everything's fine. Everything's fine. Well, you're just kicking a a very big can a little bit down the road, and everybody must see that. But now the can is now starting to roll back towards the peak, towards the foot. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, and it's bigger. Yes. All of a sudden, Bad it's metaphor. not just a can. Yeah. It's full of shark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so so what the, the analogy for Germany is, you know, when there's light at the end of the tunnel, but it's really the headlamp on the train coming towards you. That's yes. Germany. Oh, great. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, we have a government that just opened up more fossil fuel exploration. So, you know, it's even worse, actually. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so one of the things I've been looking at, and I'm not sure if I've talked to you about this before, and this is actually a new frontier for me, is an evolution. One of our energy sectors has to change. All existing conventional ways of approaching our energy for one reason or other is not going to work. So one of those sectors has to change if we're to get through this in a sensible form. Okay. Now, one of the areas I'm looking at is an evolution of the nuclear industry. Now, I've come across I've come across um, uh, thorium. Now the convention. When I first looked at this, I actually rejected it, right? Now because the 
way thorium is presented in the literature, in the official reports, is thorium solid fuel. It's okay, but it's not practical. And the problem is you've got your thorium in balls of, you get thorium with graphite on the outside, you put it in the reactor. There comes a point when you've got to get the fuel out of the reactor to clean it. And if you don't clean it, the, en- the thorium that's got energy is locked inside the contaminated ball. Okay. And so while it's really, really radioactive, you've got to process it. You've got to take it out of the reactor, process it, and put it back in. It's, it's a pain in the ass. And, and, and so people go, yeah, you know what? This is not worth the hassle. Uranium is more effective anyway. Okay. All discussion for thorium has been directed towards that. Right? When actually one of the Generation 4 uh, um, energy systems um, is, is called liquid, liquid, uh, molten salt. Okay. So molten salt thorium reactor, or, or it's, it's, a, it's a liquid fuel thorium reactor, L- LFTR. Okay. And what sort of temperature is the liquid, is thorium liquid at? So it's, it's not, not, not it, it, we're not liquefying the thorium itself. It starts as a salt. Oh, okay. So at, at a mine site, you, you get the thorium, you put it in a salt, usually fluoride. Okay. You can put it in a chloride salt, but uh, if you put it in a fluoride salt, uh, it's less corrosive inside the reactor. And so the salt circulates. Okay. And so any problem elements just drop to one side of the reactor and just stay there till they're consumed, and the energy keeps going. Oh, interesting. And as the salt comes back out, any contaminated fuel can be extracted and more fuel can be put in while the reactor's running. Goodness. Okay. Is this being done on an industrial scale anywhere in the world? It's been done in the state. It's been done in the United States in the 1970s by the military. Ah. Right. And they shut it down. Uh, uh, Tricky Dicky Nixon uh, basically said, no, we're not doing this anymore. And the best thing I can come up with is they did this to make sure that a uranium civilian nuclear power Hmm. system was to camouflage the nuclear weapons industry. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So one of the arguments against thorium is, oh, oh we proliferate new nuclear weapons. Now, now that's not true, as it turns out. But the people who are saying that are giving cover for the group who want to proliferate nuclear weapons. It's just as you're kidding, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because the output. I remember you said a little bit of this in podcast one. The the output of a molten thorium reactor is is used in medical isotopes. It's it's not useful for weaponry. So, so the the uh, medical isotope industry need things like cesium uh, you know, and strontium, and and we need to make those isotopes somehow. For as long as there is a medical isotope industry, I'm thinking that the intensity of modern medicine is one of the things that we will have to abandon. It's just it's not going to keep going. But anyway, that's that's a, probably a different conversation. One of the segues, and we may end up with podcast five on this one, is there's a school of thought that that. Uh, um, the modern pharmaceutical med- medicine ha- can now no longer be trusted as an institution, uh, as, as a science and everything like that. that, 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 that it, the whole thing will have to be reinvented. And th- this is going to make you laugh. Let's, let's go to South America and we'll, we'll get Chinese herbal medicine to meet with the Amazon shaman methods. Ayahuasca. Right. Well, hey, <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway. <sighs> yeah, yeah. That's a random random segue for you there. So, so what's happened is um, th- th- thorium molten salt, uh, it starts out as thorium, and you've got to irradiate it so it 
goes to a, an isotope of uranium called U233. Right. And so that happens inside the reactor itself. Okay. And that's and that's where the radiation happens. And it all you know, gets burned up and then you get the, the, the fuel at the other end. If you get a situation where you have a reaction that runs away, which is really hard to do with thorium, they get to a certain temperature and you've got like a melt plug and the whole thing just melts out and drains and the whole thing cools down. So, right. And you've got a, a concept called Doppler broadening, where if the reaction goes too strong and gets out of control, it will actually start absorbing itself through neutron bombardment and the reaction will collapse. Oh, interesting. So there's, there's not one but two things that actually stop a meltdown from happening. Yeah. You've got your own feedback loops. The feeding, whereas with uranium, the feedback loops are all pushing it into greater instability. These ones are reducing the instability. I'm going down the rabbit hole here to try and sort of find out, is this real? Mm. Because what, 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 I, what I discovered was, uh, I'm, like I'm, I used to mentor PhDs and used to you know, review PhD students every year. And there's a way to, you know, when the PhD student's trying to gaslight you in trying to, trying to sort of tell you, everything's fine, just sign the form and let me live. Yep, I will have a thesis at the end. It will be worth it, yes. Or, or are they bullshit? Yeah, okay. That language was visible to me in a lot of these thorium reports. Okay, so now we have to work out what is it they're hiding. So, so it's a circular reasoning. It was circular reasoning, and all discussion about liquid thorium salt was, was quietly diverted into solid thorium fuel. And then they would downplay the whole molten salt thing. And and when you actually sort of go through these, so the reasons not to do it, oh, we're a lab that's actually funded to look at solid fuel only. Uh-huh. Yeah, these are bullshit excuses. Yeah, 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 totally. Right. The the, the neutronics uh, simulations that actually sort of come out you, you, that will predict what will happen in a reactor doesn't exist for the liquid thorium uh, salt, so that they don't have a reason to reject it. It's just, the work hasn't been done. Hasn't been done. So, so who's going to do it, Sam? Because if you're right, let's take this back to 2050, and you've managed to do the work. We've got molten thorium reactors. What kind of, how big are they? Are we talking something the size of of Sellafield Windscale? Something that's basically you know hundreds of acres? No, no that's that's the other. This is the other odd part of this story. When I think of a nuclear reactor, when I first came across this, I'm thinking about a complex that's, you know, like massive. hundreds of metres tall. Yes, it's massive. It's expensive. It takes 30 years to build. It's got so much concrete in that we're just going to blow our fossil fuel budget just making the concrete. And, and the locals hate it and, yeah. and, and all that. Right. So the Chinese have actually made a small modular unit. And it actually is, is it, it's, it's up and running and it's stable. A molten thorium modular unit. A molten thorium. Okay modular reactor right so this thing is two megawatts in capacity it looks like it, i got i've got a photograph of it I, I, I can send you this photograph if you like mm. that looks like it will fit inside a single shipping container two megawatts inside a shipping container you could have one per village you could actually have one per village as opposed to these tabletop nuclear that people like Mumbio yeah. talk about which which would in fact swamp the entire village and be radioactive for how long right so do we get any radioactive output from this that we need to worry about so here's the, here's the thing I'm trying to work out how much of this is real right and what I'm finding at the moment is all of that what I've just talked about is real but it's been covered up. Right, and it's it's actually the the nuclear weapons industry that has been holding this back, even in China. Uh, so the Chinese have been trying to do it. 
But they've been lobbied by the US government not to connect that reactor to the, um, the power grid. And they're listening because? I think, no, I th- they're in a conflict at the moment. Yeah. And that conflict will go to a different stage. And when it does, it doesn't matter. Uh, so, so, and, and then you've got the thing, well, the Chinese, the Chinese, they're just going to do what they're going to do. So, okay. So the amount of, like, you look at the uranium cycle. I think I actually, uh, let me, uh, uh, I did some calculations. So we're going to generate 10,000 gigawatt hours of electrical power over a year, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if we're going to do this with the uranium, we would start out with 278.8 tons of yellow cake mined from 123 million tons of ore at, say, 0.5% grade. Whoa, hang on a minute. 123 million tons of ore. How, how long does it take to mine that? Uh uh, that, that, that's a couple. Of, that's a couple of months. Oh, really? These mining op- these mining operations are huge. Wow. Okay, that's not a right limiting step then. You've got these massive trucks going back and forth. Oh God, burning fossil fuels to carry the uranium. At the moment, yeah. Okay, so 123 million tons of uranium. 278 tons of natural yellow cake, which is U308, has got to be mined from 123 million tons of uranium ore and then refined. To, to 278 tons of yellow cake. Right. We then have got to put go through conversion, where we're converting the yellow cake to what's called uranium hexafluoride. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so now this is radioactive. The, the the yellow cake is radioactive. It has to be handled with care. You can't just let anyone do it. So then we've got to take that um, uranium uh, uh, UF6, and we've got to enrich it. The isotope that drives the fission reaction is called uranium-235. That is actually what controls the reaction. But natural uranium has only 0.7% content of that isotope. The rest is U-238. So we've got to enrich it to about 3 or 4%. The target's 4.09%. Is this what the uranium centrifuges are for, the ones that they nailed in Iran? That's the one, Ah, yeah. Right, okay. I think Saddam Hussein was actually doing a, a like a World War II version. Right. So, so then that then is put into what we call a nuclear fuel rod assembly, uranium oxide. And so from that, we are making 32.9 tons of fuel rods. So we've gone from some 123 million tons of ore. Three million tons to 30, yeah. nearly 33 tons. 33 tons <sighs> of fuel rods. That goes into a nuclear reactor and it generates 10,000 gigawatt hours over a year. It's like a, a, a nuclear power calculator. Let's say 365 days, 90%, 92% availability, whatever it is. Okay. So, but only the U-235 is used. The rest is not. And uranium-238 is highly radioactive. It's also very hot. And so at the end, you have to pull out 31 tons, 31,584 tons of spent nuclear fuel, 96% of the original mass, comes out. Some of it, and then you get different classifications of waste. Um, And and so a portion of that has to go into long-term storage. How long is long-term? Are we talking millennia? Okay, so, so, so very low level waste goes into permanent storage like in a waste dump. Uh, and that's about 9,200 tonnes. Wow. Low-level waste, 21,824 tonnes, goes into storage for 300 years. 
Uh, intermediate level waste, 347 tonnes, that's about 3,000 years. Wow. And the high-level waste, we're talking 19 tonnes, that has got to be stored for 100,000 years. 100,000 years. That's a third of the total evolution of human history. And, and the idea that we're going to have a stable society 100,000 years in time. <laughs> Somebody thought this was a good idea. I just... Yeah, yeah. So it was the a military. It was the military yeah. people who actually did. Right, so now let's look at the thorium. Uh, this is not solid fuel. This is liquid uh, fuel. So what we do is, uh, so, so we're going to start with the ore. We're going to start with 280 tons of monazite mineral sands. Okay. From that, we're going to extract out 1.45 tons of natural thorium, thorium oxide. Are these radioactive? Do we have to do this very carefully like we did with the yellow K? So it's mildly radioactive, okay. uh, but only mildly. Like the, the hazards for storing thorium salt, the hazard sheet says put it in a plastic container that's sealed off from water. Oh, okay. You don't need lead. Or, or, you know, 20, no, you 20 no, inches no. of concrete or something. Okay. So it, so it's, a, it's the sort of thing that you wouldn't put your child on. Right. Right. But it's it's not it, – a, a bit of common sense is all that's required. Is it an alpha emitter, a gamma emitter? Do you know, just out of interest? You've got low-level alpha. Right. Okay. Right. I think I think that's the case. There's no gamma. Gamma's the problem. Yeah. Low-level alpha and some and some beta, but it's, it's, it's easily contained and there's not very much of it. So it's not a radioactive material. It's what's called a fertile material. Right. So from that, we're going to we've now got 1.45 tons of natural thorium oxide. We're going to then make 1.34 tons of thorium fluoride salt, and this is what gets put into the reactor. Yep. It's it's a it's uh, it, it's 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 a it's a conversion. You've got to add things and, and all that. So okay. Anyway, so this is the stuff that you pour into the reactor. It's not radioactive in the conventional sense. That reactor makes. 10,000 gigawatt hours of power over a year, and you're adding a little bit as you go. At the end of it, you've got 13.46 kilograms of low-level waste to be stored for 300 years. Alternatively, you could make it into the medical isotope industry. Wow. And it's low levels. So it's not going to wipe out the planet if if you screw up, mess up. No, so, and to, to store it, you just put it in a steel box or maybe a box lined with wax. And there's... 13 kilograms of it. That's less than my horse's feedbacks. I could pick that up, as opposed to 31,584 tonnes, which is what you told me, and I wrote it down, of the uranium. In context, the Finnish annual power consumption is 85 terawatts, right? So if everything was thorium, molten salt, we would need 11.4 tonnes of salt fuel. That's a single truckload for a year for the nation of Finland. Right, and that's the fuel going in. Yeah, yeah, that's wow for the whole of Finland. And the fuel coming out is, you know, <laughs> yeah, eight times thirteen. So what's that? Eighty. So so about a hundred kilograms. It's probably less than you and I weigh put together. Yeah. So uh, it, it's it, it's 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 ridiculous. So so what I'm what I'm trying to determine here is um, is this stuff real? Yeah. Um, uh, if we're in a hall of mirrors. Now, what I've now come to understand is there are multiple countries around the world working on thorium on the quiet. You've got India. They're actually making a reactor. China already has done it. There's a picture of it, and there are lobbying actions to try and stop them. What's interesting is America is actually working on this on the quiet, and they're trying not to tell anyone. I'm now in contact with a group called the Thorium Network, and if you're interested, there's a guy called Jeremiah Josie. 
who talks about this sort of stuff. And he's one of the people that promote this idea. And I've been sort of trying to sort of determine, um, is the stuff he's telling me correct? And so far, the answer is yes. But if mm. that's the case, the predicament we're in at the moment need not have happened. No. Although, to be fair, our predicament is not just a power predicament. It's also uh, a total pollution of the planet True. predicament. We've broken so many boundaries. It's not just the fossil Understood. fuels. But Understood. even so, the fact that we, we're generating nuclear fuel that, that has a 100,000-year half-life, or yeah. we could have this one yeah. at 300 years max, or we turn it into medical isotopes. It's it's actually criminal. So what what used to really concern me was the idea of a conventional nuclear power plant at every mine site. And that's what was proposed in the mining industry because that's the amount of power they need anyway. And their brilliant idea was to put all that spent nuclear fuel into the waste dump. Back into the mine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's, 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 yeah, they they don't, that's not appropriate. They they don't quite understand that that's, that's not appropriate. Uh, And then then you've got the idea of your average Shire council has one of these smaller nuclear reactors. Yes. And so the print, the probability of a Homer Simpson just goes up. (laughs) <laughs> and, and also, it's you know they call them tabletop nuclear reactors. I'm going. That's a very, very big table. Yeah. Because it, however small you want to make your uranium nuclear reactor, it's it's not going to fit in a shipping container. Right. It's not going to fit in ten shipping containers. Whereas this could. So what worries me is this has been repressed. But let's, if we want to make the thorium, where do we get it from? Usually, thorium is a waste product okay. in the existing nuclear industry. They don't want it. Okay. There are stockpiles that are all over the place they don't know what to do with. Okay. Uh, it's a waste product or a penalty element in any rare earth mine. They, they, they don't want to know. They, they said this, this stuff costs us money. So have you crunched the numbers of supposing we were to replace the world's current electrical flow with thorium? How long have we got until the thorium runs out? I haven't, I haven't actually sort of done that. Because it seems to me this is a bridge. It's not going to be a forever solution, but it's a bridge. No, but, but there's, there's so much stuff that you're sort of doing there that, that it will take as many years to go through our waste dumps alone, right? Yeah. So any rare earth mine, for example, has got all these dangerous chemicals to extract the thorium, uh, the thorium, thorium. And there's another project that I've become interested in that uses plasma to change the texture of the of the mineral sands, which makes the rare earths easier to extract, and thorium is one of the elements that fall out in that process. Uh, tell me what plasma is, because I'm used to medical plasma, which is a fraction of blood, and I'm guessing that's not what you're talking about. So, no, this this is a geek thing. There are four states of matter. You've got the solid, like an ice cube. Oh, that kind of plasma. Okay, right? yes. And the, and then then we go to a liquid when the ice cube melts down and becomes water. Yeah. And then we're going to heat that water till it becomes steam. Now it's a gas. We're going to heat the steam to the point where all the electrons are stripped off all the molecules, and we've got what's called an ionized gas. That ionized gas is a plasma. And what's the temperature at which you, these are working? About 3,000 degrees Celsius. So have you crunched the numbers of how much thorium you create for your thorium nuclear reactor in order to create that heat to create more thorium? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's, there's, there's a The energy return on energy invested is a number that is so high that I dare not say it out loud. And I actually want to go down the rabbit hole and actually check these calculations. Wow. So it's higher than oil? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Without a doubt. Uh, uh, because you've got like um, almost nothing to actually make the fuel in comparison to conventional nuclear. Okay. All the radiation happens inside the reactor itself. 
Okay, so you don't need all the super cooling and all the yeah, massive yeah. amounts of water. And then you've got your waste when it comes out is a much smaller volume and the uh, needs to contain that waste are so much different. Yeah, you're not shipping it around the world in massive ships that you're having to... Right. All, if all of that holds water, then we've actually got a conversation here. And you know, the thing is, is, it holds water so far and my brain is bleeding with the implications of that. Yeah. How long do you think it would take... If you started now and somebody were to fund you to get something that would be replicable at an industrial scale where people could actually use it? Well, the picture I just showed you, it's already been manufactured. Right. It already exists. So, so, so now I would just say, I'll have one of those, please, a blue one. Right. But the Chinese go, no, thank you. We're keeping them all to ourselves. But you could you could reverse engineer that. I suppose. I, I, I'm, I would be asking other people with, with, a, with a more nuclear savvy engineering uh, education to go with that. Uh, and the American spy network in China to go and have a look at it, please. But then they're not going to share it either. So uh, it, is my, it is my understanding that the Russians are actually the best technically advanced group that actually does nuclear right. technology at the moment. Um, so, but uh, we've arranged ourselves to be on the opposite side of a conflict with the Russians now. And the Chinese. So the, the Chinese and the Russians probably talking to each other, but they're just not talking to us. Okay. So what 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 we, uh, I would do is like I've actually got a couple of reports from the U.S. military from the seventies, and they're, they're public domain. You, you just got to find them. And so there was a they had an eight megawatt system running for six thousand hours of uninterrupted power at the Oak Ridge uh, Laboratory. Okay. Right, and so they did it. It was fine. It was stable. But for political reasons, they were told to shut it down. Right. So, and, and the details of that have been buried. Try and recreate that reactor. How long will that take? Well, it depends on the cooperation of the people involved. Is a lot of the technology similar enough to existing nuclear technology to go, you know, I'll have an off-the-shelf set of pipes that we could knit together? Pretty much. It's, it's, a, it's the same stuff. It, it, it's, it's, it's not that different. Like, like the uranium nuclear system, fission system, is nasty. The engineering to contain that is far in excess of what's needed here. Okay. So we'll have the, the, the baby version of that in blue, please. Right. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing to say here, too. I actually found the nuclear clerics the most difficult to deal with in the last few years. Uh, and I used to call them the vegans of the sustainability movement. They were the pro-nuclear oh, right. group. Yes, they were yes. aggressive as hell. Yes, I've listened to some podcasts. They had some science, but they almost never had all the practical elements on hand. And they were really difficult to deal with. And it was really hard because of their attitude not to launch them into a low orbit to be slingshot into the sun. Uh, it, it, it's but then you could convert them to thorium, and they can be just as evangelical, but with some actual fact base behind it. That would be nice. What, what I'm now finding, at least some of them were actually correct, but the problem is they just got in their own way, and I actually dismissed them. Aha! There we go. And the reason I dis dismissed them is the language in all the official reports were to direct me away from liquid thorium salt towards thorium solid fuel. Right. Right, and so that, and I just believed it. Okay, right. Right, and and I almost fell for it. So some of the nuclear clerics have been preaching thorium, liquid thorium. Some of them, yes. Some of them, yes. But the way they do it, right, makes them right. You're a high maintenance twat. Uh, you're going to stay at a thousand paces. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, and so yes, evangelicals are like that. So anyway, so if so, so that's that's a big segue. But if that actually works, 
that we've got a, a, a small localized power source that we could do things with. Now, we, we've got to be very careful here because, because we don't have it here yet and we're not allowed to have it at the moment. So is it really a solution? And if we were to actually develop it, would we be able to ma manufacture enough of them to be useful in time? The answer is no. Right. Because of material flows or because of time constraints? Uh, you've got the in technical know-how to actually build device like it's in, in that photograph. Not very many people on the planet can actually do that. But we could skill up if we knew it was what we needed to do, you know, war effort and all that. If you can go from... Yeah, yeah. Look, there's, there's, a, there's a phrase we have from Australia, harden up. Yeah. Harden up, Australia. Uh, um, yeah, so um, snap out of it, stop your whining, get to work. Uh, yes, the answer is yes. But because vast proportions of our society won't have a bar of this uh, or any of the issues as well, it's, it's actually going to be a very boutique solution for, for the, only for the like-minded. But it's always struck me that one of the reasons why the business-as-usual people are so obstructionist is because they, at a very deep level, one, know that we're driving towards the edge of a cliff, but they cannot find a brake pedal or the steering wheel, so they're just going to pretend we're not. This is the brake pedal and the steering wheel. If you could explain to, I don't know, the Rishi Sunaks of this world, that if they were to divert things away from, I don't know, maybe we just don't build so many luxury yachts and personal super jets, and instead we build these. You know, it's not that we're going to get to business as usual, and what would worry me is, in the same way that the people who think nuclear fusion is the answer, they, they have this kind of weird idea that we're just going to import nuclear fusion, it's going to take everything else and the world will continue as it has. And that cannot happen because we're hitting so many other planetary boundaries. But if we can get through, guys, it's not that we're all going back to the Stone Age. We're going forward to something different, but that something different does have a power source that is neither fossil fuel nor going to contaminate the planet for the next many millennia. That's a whole different narrative. Correct, correct. So um, the people who are sabotaging this for their own reasons, and yeah, the, the reasons are many and varied, um, I guess there's, there's a frustration in the next statement. They're going to taste like chicken. I'll say it's just like chicken. Right. Uh, I can think a lot of our existing leaders will just be replaced in one form or another, and, and, and society, we're just not going to have this anymore. And there's going to be a period of time when society will actually go through its archives and say, well, how many of these ideas could have worked but were scotched right. for economic reasons or political reasons or military reasons? Yeah, th those three being neatly wrapped together to be almost indistinguishable. Yeah. You clowns. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, we need rid of them. I mean, we know this. We need a whole new political system. We need a whole new economic system. So back to the um, energy. If Let's say the lithium thing doesn't work. I've got high hopes for it. I'm still going down the rabbit. I still am having trouble believing what I'm seeing because it is so simple. And, you know, I'm, I'm really sort of second-guessing. Like, like, have I got the science right? You know, like, like, what's, what, what am I missing? And it turns out the politics. Right. So anyway, so it's, but let's not depend upon that. An another thing that might come through is what we call deep geothermal drilling. So if we can actually drill holes into the crust really deep, quickly and easily, then geothermal power can be a game changer. 
Okay. Right. And so that is a technology breakthrough that may happen. How, how deep do we need to drill for that to be relevant? Seven or eight kilometres, maybe 10 kilometres. That's uh, that's very deep. And that's going to take a lot of energy to get down that far? To do that. But again, yeah, the energy return right. over energy invested, have you crunched the numbers on that? Unknown. Okay. Unknown, because you've got the thing where you, you drill a hole and you may not have the heat down there that you thought. How could you not? Uh, there are, there are heat, pockets of heat in the crust. Uh, it's it's not just a sphere with with layers on top. I always imagine it like a gobstopper. You go down the, the you know you go down to the blue layer. A gobstopper, and and, and there <laughs> yeah. we have it's hot. Okay, right. So you, you can think it's hot, but it's uh, but and it may not be as hot as you need. Right. That's the other thing. Like like there there's a temperature gradient. We think it's not till you get down there and have a look. Right. And then uh, the geothermal systems in Cornwall that they tried. Uh, you, you you can get the holes down there, but then you've got cracks and faults in the hole. So lots of steam coming up goes into the cracks, not not up the tube where you want. And then do you create earthquakes uh, as per fracking? And so I don't know. If you set up a geothermal plant correctly, it's actually less intrusive. Fracking, you have a hole drilled in, and then you're going to actually explode the charge, will then break a whole area, which will then settle and crack, and then pressure is relieved. And if you do that in a whole region then the earth wants to shift and that's how you get your earthquake. Yeah. You also, as far as I can tell with fracking, you're contaminating the water table for the rest of the duration of this planet, which that's is right. not a kind yep. thing to do. do you, are you contaminating water table with the geothermal? So not that I know of, because you're putting in one one or two, two holes, sorry, and they're going down and they're lined. Okay. Right. And if you are interacting with the water table, you're not putting anything into the water table that's nasty. Right. Okay. Whereas fracking, you're pumping chemicals down yeah, the hole. Yeah, and they won't tell you what the chemicals are because that's a trade secret. Yes. So um, I used to be an activist in Australia with a group called Lock the Gate. Well done. And there was an, a region that I used to live in called uh, the Scenic Rim. And they they made a uh, documentary called Fractured Country, which describes that whole issue and how the local government decided they wanted the royalties and collaborated with foreign capital uh, and, and the people on the ground found themselves at war with corporations and the government, and they even changed the law and the legal language so it wouldn't be managed by the Mining Act. And so the people on the ground had no idea what was happening. Uh, and for every 10 operators, nine of them were Chinese and the 10th was American. And so all the gas was extracted out for um, export, yeah, foreign investment. And, and, and in Australia, they took all the gas out but then they wouldn't sell it back to us because they had a gas shortage and it was more money could be made elsewhere. And so we had a gas shortage. If we get to 2050, the historians looking back at our era are going to wonder how people could be both so venal and so gullible. But anyway, let's not go there because we're running out of time. It seems to me that, so what we've got to is little industrial units of around a thousand people. Yep. based around whatever industry is useful in that geopolitical area, with satellites around it of villages of 30 to 40 families. And each village could potentially, maybe, if Simon is right, you're going to be a saint in the future, Simon, not just superbrain, saint superbrain, molten thorium reactors in each of these little villages. So if, if, that's, tr if that's true, I get assassinated. Um, so, um, oh, yes. No, we'll avoid that one. Okay, <laughs> you'll just be a god then. Gods don't have to be assassinated. God superbrain who's created the molten thorium reactor idea. Yeah. I, I'm suspecting we're going to run out of copper or something to transmit this, but we'll worry about that as a future podcast. So we will have to actually, sure, uh, but we, we, we will have to actually source our raw materials differently 
And one of the sources would be where all those raw materials have already dredged up already. Where are they now? And so a lot of our rubbish dumps and a lot of our uh, existing cities and a lot of our existing technology, like internal combustion engine cars, they're rich environmental sources of, of uh, I'm talking about a form of recycling, but what we call recycling has to be completely reimagined. And so we're going to have an era of re pulling everything apart like a boneyard and repurposing everything to new technological outcomes. Like you might make a water purification out of parts from a car. So there's going to be a whole new set of creative ideas and 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 networks of creative people going, hey guys, I had this new idea of what you could do with the old carburetor. Look, you can make it into this. Now you have it right there, right there. So and And that society is going to reinvent everything and the norm is going to, right, I've come up with a new idea, and everyone says, that's great, let's hear let's it. share it, right. So everything's open source. So open source, along with the diversity of ideas, but so much is going to be needed, that, and they don't know what's going to work and what's not, and so there's going to be an environment of let's try stuff, and if some of it works, then we'll be okay. So are you going to put the molten thorium reactor open source when you've got it all sorted? If I could, uh, th- that's an interesting question. So uh, I, I, that's an interesting question. So, like, like, you cannot actually, it's not really a pro, um, feasible to turn it into a nuclear weapon. You've got to turn it into uranium first and you need a reactor to do it, right? And then once you've got it into the uranium, the isotope only lasts for 28 days. So there are not ethical constraints to its being open source. I, I'm not entirely sure if that's correct, but there's certainly less ethical constraints. If if you were to make a nuclear weapon, it, it'd be a dumbass idea to try and use thorium when you can just use uranium, which there's plenty of anyway. Um, so uh, the the ethics of that 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 has to be thought through and probably discussed amongst people who who are, know what they're doing. Once again, I've just stumbled on something by accident that appears to be quite interesting. Like, uh, you would probably want to talk to the Thorium Network uh, leader, uh, Jeremiah Josie. I have his contact details. Yeah, yeah, I've got his name down. Yep, that'd be grand. Simon, I think we're going to have to finish because, I All think, right. first of all, I'm sure you have other things to do. And second, we are so far over time again. That was amazing. Really amazing. I, I feel hope-filled for the first time in quite a long time because it feels to me that there's our window. And if we can see the window, we can get there. So thank you for drawing back the curtains on hope and possibility. Simon Superbrain, it's been an absolute delight. I have no doubt we'll talk again at some point in the future. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. And that's it for this week. So much thanks to Simon for everything that he is and does, for being a superbrain, obviously, and for applying that brain in directions that it seems very few other people are going. Simon is really thinking about how we can build the future that will work, actually brick by brick, megawatt by megawatt, litre of water by litre of water, how can we do this? And then he's sharing the results with the rest of us. And as I said at the top, this feels possible. I don't know how, but it's the first time I've really seen the window and felt that there was a route through to it. So I will be working on the stories that we can build around this. How can we write the novels, the film scripts, the poems, the videos, the op-eds in the newspapers that will veer us away from business as usual, 
That's the first thing we have to do is stop the gaslighting, stop people thinking that our current way of doing things is the only way or is a durable way. And then beyond that, to build a sense of how the different world might look if we actually get it right. It feels very exciting. I think I said that before, so I'll stop. Thank you, Simon. I so enjoyed that. We will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, as ever, thanks to Kerosene for wrestling with the sound and for the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith for wrestling with the tech and for the search function. I'll stop mentioning that eventually, but I'm still very impressed by it. Thanks to Anne Thomas for wrestling with the transcripts. And thanks to you for listening, which I hope involves no wrestling at all. And if you know of anybody else who would really like to get to grips with the future that we could build, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.